are beginning a brand new series that we are calling All In, in which we're looking at what does it mean for us as the church to be all in when it comes to the mission of God? Because being a part of the church is so much more than simply joining like a fitness club or a country club or some sort of other social organization. What we believe as Christians is that when we are called by the name of Christ, we are brought into a new family. Uh, the family of the church, that we're made a part of Christ's body, which means that we're supposed to be a part of his work in the world. But what does that actually look like? How do we actually join him in that mission? What, is it, what does it take uh, for us to truly be all in as a community? That's what we're going to be talking about, especially as we look at our theme verse for this series, which was the one that was read just a few moments ago from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But I think it's only right that before we dive into God's word, we actually allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together in this place that we might learn from you. That we might not only hear your word spoken, but, but hear your word spoken to us. That it might take root in our hearts and in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want us to take a close look at that passage that was read just a few moments ago from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, if you've been around church at all, uh, whether this church or another church, you've probably heard this verse read, maybe even preached on. After all, it comes from the book of Romans, which I find is many pastors' like favorite letter to preach from. Uh, you may have heard it in a confirmation class. It's, it's one of these uh, verses that kind of sticks out. Sounds like it'd be a good life verse, right? Uh, and so we've gotten kind of comfortable with it. But quite honestly, if you step back and you just think about uh, how somebody living in 21st century America who's not as familiar with the church uh, would read that, honestly, this is a really bizarre passage. Uh, because he tells us that in view of God's mercy, we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, here's why this is weird. It's weird because nowadays when it comes to religion, we don't do sacrifices, Okay, we're not in like the Old Testament biblical sense of the word, right? Uh, but, but in the Old Testament and in biblical times, sacrifices were pretty commonplace. And in fact, you would often bring a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, to the temple, and then you would offer it to the priest, and then the priest would then slaughter that animal, and he would burn it on the altar as an offering before God. Now, that, that sounds like crazy, especially in our, our world today where you have PETA and animal rights, and people want to wonder, what, what are you doing with your pets back in biblical times? This makes us really kind of nervous as we, we hear kind of stuff like that. And the question is, why? Why did they offer sacrifices? They offered sacrifices because it was their desire to be in right relationship with a holy and perfect God. You see, they recognized that the God that they worshipped was the Lord Almighty, that he was perfect in majesty and in glory, but we as human beings were not. 
Every single one of us at some point in our lives has turned our backs on God. None of us is perfect. We often do our own things, often pursue our own selfish ends. And so they knew that if they were going to have a right relationship with God, something had to atone for them, had to make up for the ways in which they turned their backs on God. And and the way that that was provided for was through sacrifice. An animal would take your place. An animal would take your place and be offered before God, and then you're now welcome in his presence. And yet here now, what Paul is saying is he's saying, well, God does want to have a relationship with you, but he doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. Let me say that really clearly. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. All right? It would be as though uh, you went to like a Goodwill, right? And you're going to, uh, you know, they, they come rolling out with the donation bin and you're about to like unload your car and throw all your donation stuff into the bin and then the person with the bin says, oh, no, 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 we don't want your stuff. We want you. We'd like you to get in the bin and, and you're donating you. You're donating yourself. You're all in. That's what we want. And we look at that and we're just like, oh my goodness, Seriously? That's, that's what you want? And it, it makes us kind of nervous. Like, is that really what God is asking? He wants all of us? He wants us on the altar? And Paul's saying, yeah, that's exactly what he wants. And see, this is part of the problem with living sacrifices. Is living sacrifices crawl off the altar. Living sacrifices don't want to stay in the bin. Living sacrifices would prefer to get out and do things on our own uh, timetable and hope to God that we don't trip as we get out on our long robe, right? We don't want to stay in the bin. We don't want to stay on the altar. That's the hard part about being a living sacrifice. Why is that? I think ultimately it's because at our core we have a problem with trust. We have a problem with trusting God for our, uh, for our provision and for our plans, We have a problem trusting God for our provision and for our plans. We wonder, if if I say yes to God, if I jump into the bin, if I lay down on the altar, what's he going to do with me? What if times get difficult and they get hard and and suddenly he doesn't deliver, he doesn't provide what I need? What if he has plans for me, but I don't like where those plans might end up? What if those plans might, might lead me to a loss of comfort, might even actually be dangerous, might, might uh, cause me to move outside my comfort zone and into difficult relationships, difficult places, difficult jobs and careers? What if, what if, what if? We don't trust God for these things. And so we climb out of the bin, we crawl off the altar, and instead we pursue our provision and plans in other places. Because the reality is is that we all want to know where is our daily bread coming from. All of us want to know what the purpose for our lives are. And we're going to find some way to to pursue them. The problem is, is that when we don't find those in God, when we no longer are looking for those from God, what we end up doing is we end up jumping on the hamster wheel of life. Right? The hamster wheel of life looking for our provision and our purpose and plans in other places. Right? So we, we look for the next job. We, we look for that next uh, rung up on the corporate ladder. We look for that place where we're going to ultimately be provided for, only to find that the moment we get that next big paycheck or that nicer house, it's still not enough, isn't it? There's still more needs. We find just how tenuous it is. We feel like we have it one moment, we lose it the next, and now we're back to square one. 
Or likewise, we look for, for our purpose and our meaning in things like relationships and careers and, and, and new houses and new towns or cities as we make moves, looking for that next biggest moment in life, that next better chapter in our story, only to find that they don't quite live up to what they were selling. That the luster and the sheen that they had when we pursued them really doesn't satisfy. So what do we do? Well, we run faster. And we pursue it more. But it's like hamster wheel. We just keep running and running and running, but we're not getting anywhere. And woe betide you if another hamster jumps in the wheel and runs faster than you. Because now you're totally upside down and thrown out of the wheel. And that's what it feels like. We're all just a bunch of hamsters competing on the same wheel, going absolutely nowhere. We constantly long for provision and plans, but we don't find it in the rest of the world around us. But we also don't bring it to God. Because we don't trust that he's the one who can actually provide for the deepest longings of our heart. Which is why Romans 12.1 is so important, because I, want you, I really want us to break this verse down. The sermon is really out of one verse, okay? And that's because there's so much packed in here. I want us to first notice how Paul begins this verse. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Now, just a little tip on studying the Bible. Anytime you're reading through the Bible and you find a, a word like therefore, you want to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? What happened right before this that would lead the writer to say what they're about to say? And what you will find, if you actually look before this verse, is what Paul has been doing in the entire book of Romans up to this point. Because Romans 1 through 11 is Paul recounting the story of God's love. God's love for his wayward people, people who'd turn their backs on him, people who'd run from him. The story that Paul tells in Romans is of a God who is not content to just let us run, but who rather leaves his throne in heaven and runs after us in love, who chases us down, who tells us that we are loved and forgiven, who invites us into a new family and into a new way of life. A God who ultimately was willing not just to leave his throne in heaven, but ultimately to die on a cross for us and rise again to provide us with a hope that truly is from everlasting to everlasting. When Paul says, therefore, in Romans 12, 1, it's a turning point in the whole letter. He's like, in light of all that love that God has shown you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of that mercy. And in fact, if you look at just before it, at the very, very end of Romans chapter 11, he actually ends up quoting two passages from the Old Testament. He quotes a passage uh, first from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. And now, Paul's readers would have been familiar with the book of Isaiah, and they would have been familiar with the fact that, that chapter 40 in Isaiah is actually a turning point in that book as well. See, everything in the first part of Isaiah was written to Isaiah's contemporaries, the people who had turned their backs on God, who were pursuing unjust ways, warning them of God's judgment that was coming. But starting in chapter 40 of Isaiah and going to the end, Isaiah shifts his audience to a future generation that will be carried off into exile as a result of their wickedness. And here's how Isaiah 40 begins. This is incredible. Totally different tone of voice. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And the rest of Isaiah 40 is God talking about how, yes, one day you will be carried into exile, but just because you're in exile doesn't mean that I've abandoned you. That I promise that I will bring you back. 
that I will restore what is broken, that I will bring justice where there is wickedness, where I will heal my broken creation, where I will call you by name, claim you as mine, restore you to your home, and dwell with you forever. And then it ends with these words, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The second passage that Paul quotes is from the book of Job. And again, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you, you understand that the book of Job is a book in which a man, a man who loves God, encounters incredible suffering. And in the midst of that suffering, he starts to wonder, does God still love me? Is he still there for me? What possible purpose could he have amidst all this pain? I mean, he'd lost his wealth. He'd lost his family. he lost his health. He was being burdened by disease and forsaken and alone. And the whole book, he's crying out, wondering where God is. And then at the very end of the book of Job, God shows up and speaks to Job. Actually, chapter 38 of Job all the way to 42, God is speaking to Job. And through those chapters, what he shows Job is he says, look, Job, just because you can't see my plans or purpose doesn't mean that they aren't going forward. For I am the God who set the galaxies spinning in the void and yet who is mindful of the smallest ant. I'm the one who set the earth upon its foundations. I'm the one who provides rain for the ground, who tends for the beasts of the field. I'm the one who clothes you and who provides. I'm the one who owns absolutely everything. I don't owe anybody anything. And yet in my love, I provide for even the smallest of my creatures. It's God's way of saying, Job, I see you. I know what's going on in your life. And I have not abandoned you. And after God reveals all this to Job, these are Job's words in response in verse 42. He says, Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, the reason that Paul quotes from Isaiah and from Job is he's saying, look, you could be in the worst of circumstances where it seems like life is falling apart all around you and you want to know what? Your God will still be there for you. He will still provide for everything that you could possibly need. He still has a purpose and a plan for you and he does not give up on those who are called by his name. He's got your provision. He's got your plan. Don't be afraid. That's why he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He actually says that this is your true and proper worship. Now, here's where knowing a little bit about biblical languages is so important. If you look at most English translations, that final phrase that's highlighted on the screen, this is your true and proper worship, is translated differently. Uh, NIV has true and proper worship. Others have this is your spiritual worship. This is your faithful worship. Whatever it might be. They all translate this differently. But honestly, in the Greek, it's one word. And the word is logikane. And the reason why that's important is because we get our English word logic from it. 
You see what he's saying is he's saying in light of the fact that God knows everything, has everything, will provide everything, and loves you deeply, the only logical response is to offer your lives back to him because he's the only one worthy of your trust. He says, when you suddenly understand the kind of God that we have and serve, the one who provides for his people this deeply, the only reasonable, rational thing to do is to offer everything back to him because you know that in his hands you are in the best place that you could possibly be. That's the only rational thing to do is to trust him, to give yourself back to him. Because he is the one who will provide for your every need. And I think it's, it's noteworthy what Paul says that, that sacrifice looks like. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, here's what I find really funny about this. I mean, in the church, we kind of treat this verse like a fill-in-the-blank. Uh, what I mean is we go, uh, so I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your, and then we fill in stuff, your money, your stuff, uh, your heart. Uh, these are the things that we fill in, but that's actually not what he says. He says, offer your bodies. He's not talking about your stuff and your money. He's, and uh, by the way, we'll talk about that in weeks two and three. See, now nobody's going to come back weeks two and three because we're going to talk about your money and your stuff. I, I hear you. No, but that's not actually what he's talking about here. He's not talking about your money or your stuff. He's also not talking about your heart, as though it's like an internal thing only. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to offer your bodies. Why does he say that? Well, the reason why Paul says that is he says, because the way that you know that you've truly offered your lives back to God is when we can see it, is when it can be seen. It's not just about, you know, one day praying a prayer and saying, okay, oh, I'm good. I'm going to go about my life uh, the way I want to, but inside my heart, I love Jesus. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Now, he has other verses where he talks about the heart and the inward attitudes, but he says, no, when you offer your bodies as living sacrifice, what it means is that that faith and that trust should be seen in the world around you through how you live. I love how the... Uh, late British commentator and Bible expositor John Stott puts this in his commentary on the book of Romans. He says, we are to offer the different parts of our bodies not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning, typing and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. If John Stott is saying, what he's, what he's helping us understand uh, what Paul is saying ultimately is that is your faith and your trust in God evident to those around you? When they look at you, do they know that you belong to Jesus by how you live? See, that's the question we have to ask ourselves from Romans 12.1 is can they see Jesus in how I live, love, and serve? Can the people around me see Jesus and how I live, love, and serve? 
so that I don't just become somebody who talks about my faith, but I walk my faith. That people encounter Christ when they encounter me. That's part of the reason why our mission statement as a church is to help people look, live, and love more like Jesus. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. In his great commission, he tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And in the ancient world, a disciple was simply somebody who was trying to become more and more like their teacher, like their rabbi. There was an ancient blessing that actually said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What that meant was that they followed their rabbi so closely that they would get covered in the dust that he kicked up as he walked. What Jesus is saying is, he's saying, I want you, the people who've been learning how to look, live, and love more like me, to go and teach others how to look, live, and love more like me. But the only way they're going to know how to look, live, and love more like me is if they see it in you. If you demonstrate it and speak about it. If you don't just give your kind of half-hearted allegiance, but you get into the bin. You climb up onto the altar. You offer everything back to God. You need to be all in. Because when you do, people will begin to see the depth of the love that I have for them. Over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, Jesus says, this is how people know. Says, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. How? By the love that you show one another. And the reason why we can do that is because he did it first. Stop and think about it for a moment. Who is the very first truly living sacrifice? It's Jesus. We give everything back to Jesus because he's already given everything to us. Absolutely everything. He wasn't content when he saw us struggling to sit on his throne and send other messengers to do his job. No, he got off his throne, he came into this world, and he became a human being. That he might walk with us, teach us, celebrate our joys, bear our sorrows, weep our tears, and ultimately go to a cross and die in our place. But more than that, he rises again from the dead in glory. And he says, see, this is how far my love goes for you. Not even death can keep you from me. Because I open tombs. I bring light in the darkness I provide for you when every other source of provision runs out. I am the good shepherd who leads you through dark valleys, who fills your cup so that it overflows, who guides you into my paths for my name's sake and helps you to become the kind of people who demonstrate to the world the grace and the love that I've shown to you. You're my people. I will never let you go. And so you can trust me. That's what it means to be all in. That's what it means to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Because it's an acknowledgement that he who gave everything for us is worthy of everything in return. That more people might come to look, live, and love just like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you withheld nothing. But in your love, you poured out your life that we might be yours. And so, Lord, as we consider what it is you're calling us to, 
I pray that we would never shrink back, that we would never withhold anything from you, that when we hear of opportunities to serve, we would step up with joy. When we see chances to help, we would reach out in love. That when we encounter those in need, we would sit down and listen and speak words of comfort and grace so that wherever we go, people might just get a foretaste of what it's like to walk in relationship with you through us. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, that would be more and more true for us each and every single day. Teach us what it means to be all in so that more might come to know you for who you are. It's in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, that we say, Amen.